Word of the Lord, Joel 1, 1 through 20. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Because the sweet wine, because it is cut off from your mouth. For the nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like virgins wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of your youth, of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The grounds mourn. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off from our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of wilderness. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Kat. That was a great reading uh, from Joel. She had a lot of verses to read. She did very well. Well, we're in the midst of our series here on the prophets. George has just finished preaching through the book of Amos, and now we're going to do four weeks on the book of Joel, and then George will come back and preach through Habakkuk, finishing up our, our series here leading into the summer. And as we, as we do this, we're going to spend these four weeks in Joel, and it's helpful for us to kind of be reminded a little bit of the point of the prophets. And, and really, as we look at these things, you know, the prophet's role is really to make us very uncomfortable to remind us of things, to call us to a reality that we often don't see. 
And we don't want to remember. We don't want to know. We don't want to have our eyes opened to. In the book of Amos, as George did such a great job, it was to call us to seeing the injustices that are all around us. The, our moral needs and responsibilities and how we've been neglecting this, what the church is called to. I mean, that was the job of Amos, to really call out the nation and to show the injustice, to open our eyes, to awake and to see them. And here with Joel, he, the, the prophet, as we just read, is, as, as Kat just read for us, right, it's to awaken us and to see the reality of pain and suffering and loss, to awake and to see, to have our eyes opened up and to see the greatness and the severity of the suffering that's around us. And within Israel's history, the suffering was severe, as we just read. You know, and there's a lot of the suffering that Israel went through. Much of it deserved. The judgment of the Lord was on them for their injustices and the sins that they committed. But there's other suffering and pain like this that doesn't seem to be in direct relation to God's judgment. A famine has, has struck the land, a famine that's never been seen before, And there is just widespread pain and suffering and desolation. The locusts have just devoured everything. And there's nothing left. And and you have this just deep pain and loss. And this feelings of, you know, all that we have worked for has just been taken away. We were just at the cusp. And that was always kind of the period of time for the prophets during this time for Israel, they were always on the cusp, it seemed like. We finally have established ourselves again. We're finally about to become a great nation again, like the time of David. We're just at this edge. And then they lose everything. And what could ever bring us back? What could ever restore us? And the prophet is calling out Israel to not forget, right? To not turn away, but to look at the pain and the suffering and the loss directly. And it's really the need for us today, too. I mean, the the prophets are not fun books. There's a reason that churches don't often go through the prophets, because the the poetry, the literature is difficult to handle, but also the topics aren't really fun. You know, but what a need there is. You know, the need for us today to actually have our eyes opened to pain and to suffering right, to see it for what it is, you know, as Ashley was sharing about with the Redemption Group, I mean, what a gift that is to be able to name sin and to confess it, to be able to actually see God in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering. But as a culture and as a church, it's so easy to not look at those things, to not speak of those things, to not identify with people who are in the midst of suffering, nor to know how to relate to suffering. And so the prophet's pull us back, and they remind us of this reality. And as we approach Joel, you know, you you see suffering for what it is, and it's helpful for us to see what the biblical model, what Scripture is pointing us to when it comes to suffering, and it confronts us with our own perspectives towards towards suffering. George gave a great sermon as kind of the bridge uh, out of Amos into into Joel, where he talked about the role of pain and suffering. And because you see, that's what Joel is going to call us to, is really to call us out and to make us reflect upon how we view suffering, how we look at it, how we remember it, how we speak about it, how we approach it. I mean, that's what the book of Joel is trying to do. And as we look at suffering, as we look at these locusts, as our perspectives of them, we see a few different ways in which we can look at suffering, ways in which Israel could look at their suffering, ways in which we can look at our suffering. And as we look at this, there's a few very popular views. 
Right? We're going to lump them into a couple of categories. But one is a very religious view of pain and suffering in the world. Right? We can categorize a lot of people within that kind of worldview, within this kind of view of suffering. And a religious view of suffering, you look at the pain and suffering of the world, you look at the locusts who just came through and desolated their crops. Or for us, you know, the pain and the suffering that all of us are experiencing and have experienced, you know, we can look at it through a particular lens, right? Why did this happen? Why have I gone through this? What is the point of all of these things? And like George preached, you know, a few weeks back from Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, right? That idea of like everyone is either in suffering right now, has just left a time of suffering, or is about to enter into a time of suffering. Like the, I mean, this is just the reality of our lives. There's, so much, there's pain and there's suffering. So what's our perspective towards it? In a religious view, which the book of Joel has to speak against, and we have to be reminded against, a religious view of pain and suffering says, look, suffering the world is either caused by two things. It's either caused by wrongdoing, sin. That's what causes suffering. You've done something wrong, therefore you're now suffering the consequences of it. Or you could even say, if you're more fatalistic than that, you could say, or suffering is a trial that God gives us to endure. And that's kind of it. Look, it's either you deserve it, so deal with it. Or, okay, fine, you didn't deserve this, but God has given it to you, and you're going to need to really endure it. And how, depending upon how well you endure suffering, how well you can go through it, God will reward you for it. That's kind of a very religious view towards suffering. It's either viewed as a punishment for our wrongdoing or as some sort of almost reward, right? This would be kind of like a stoic view of things. Like suffering is a good opportunity. Buddhism has this idea. Like suffering is good because you can endure it and it helps you. Yeah, and so we're going to really handle suffering well to the point where it doesn't even seem like suffering anymore. I'm so strong that the suffering doesn't really even seem like suffering. And so the response to suffering then becomes either this really just leaning into it. Well, probably it's really the only response. You just lean into suffering really faithfully, really work at it hard. Like, I can handle this. I get it. I know suffering is coming. I can deal with the suffering. I'm going to handle suffering like nobody's ever handled this before, and I will be rewarded for how great I can handle suffering. And the ultimate resolution for suffering in a religious worldview then is that one day, right, one future day, there will be bliss and glory and a reward, right? If it's nirvana or if it's heaven, right? But one day I'll escape that suffering and I'll finally get what I've been hoping for. It's that religious view towards suffering. Suffering is caused by our mistakes, by sin, We have to just endure it, and one day we'll eventually escape it when we get to heaven. Now, on the other side of that spectrum, right, the irreligious view, which is also incredibly prominent, both of these views are so prominent in their context and in ours, would say, look, suffering suffering is not necessarily caused by you, but it's caused by others. I mean, other people do things that cause other people to suffer all the time. Right? I mean, people do bad things, sure, but they don't, maybe don't intend it, but people's actions produce suffering. We'll go with that, but it's really accidental. 
You know, people aren't trying to cause other people to suffer, but because of their decisions, because of the way the world is, because of the systems in place, the societal structures, the government, the school systems, it causes people to suffer because of these things. And it's really just kind of happenstance and accidental. Look, it just happens, right? They would look, suffering happens, and it really stinks if it happens to you. But it doesn't have to happen. At least that's the hope. Right? Look, it happens to people, but I really wish it wouldn't happen to people, and we should try to stop it. Right? So how do we respond to suffering from, a, from an irreligious view or from a more secular view? The response to suffering is really to find ways to cope with it if you're suffering. So if you know someone who's really suffering or you're suffering, what can you do? Well, you've got to cope. If that's medication, if that's counseling, if that's whatever you can do. Right? It's very much this mantra, this idea of like no one deserves to suffer. No one should have to suffer. Oh, are you suffering? What do we have to do to alleviate your suffering? Right? The very opposite of that religious view, which is this like faithful endurance of it, you know, like the stoic, you can do it. The other view is just this, oh, no one should have to go through this. How can we alleviate your suffering? What, how can I help you cope? The, is it drinking? Is it drug? I mean, what, what is it? What can I do to help you alleviate suffering? And then suffering will only be resolved. We're not looking to some future glory, obviously, but rather it can only be resolved as society continues to better itself and we eliminate the sources of suffering. Right, like it's terrible that suffering has happened to you. Let's make sure nobody else has to go through that. So what do we have to do to fix this cause of suffering so that no one would ever have to go through that kind of suffering again? The book of Joel and all of Scripture is vastly different than both of those views. The Bible would say, Joel is calling out the people to say, right, look, pain and suffering is real. It's not an illusion. It's not a test or a trial. It's terrible. It's overwhelming. It's the worst. Yeah. But unlike a religious view, right, what we also find, just like George pointed out with Amos, injustice is not part of God's plan, neither is suffering. It is terrible and it is real. It's not something just to endure. It's something to actually lament over and weep over because it's not part of God's plan. We were not made to suffer. We were not made to feel this pain and this hurt and this loss. Scripture also would say that it's both. It's both just and unjust. Sometimes you deserve the suffering you experience, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes it happens because of the fallen nature of this world. Life is just not fair. That's what scripture is telling us. That's what Joel is telling us. Even though as much as we want karma to be true at times or some sort of Christian version of karma, it just isn't. Some people get suffering or suffer and they don't deserve it. Some people get rewards and blessing and happiness and they didn't deserve it. You can just look to the book of Job. You can look to Jesus, Jesus in the garden, the overwhelmingness of his suffering that he didn't deserve. And what we clearly see from Joel, from the scripture, is that suffering is not a means of working out our sin. It's not a means in which we pay back our debt to God. That's not what we're doing when we suffer. It's not, some, it's not a way in which we earn a reward. Rather, 
We believe, right? Scripture is calling us, Joel and the gospel is calling us to believe in grace in the midst of suffering. The experience of grace now, not just of a future home. The good and the bad suffer equally. So the prophets are going to tell us over and over, the wisdom literature, the, the whole Bible, the good and the bad suffer equally. And the good and the bad can both experience the grace of God now in the midst of suffering. The forgiveness of sin, the love of the Father, the adoption into God's family. These joys, this hope of God, right, it, it doesn't just make suffering more bearable, but rather suffering can even enhance our joy in the midst of sorrows because of the truth of who God is. So Christianity teaches us, Scripture teaches us that, Christianity, that, that suffering is overwhelming. Right, and, and all of you, you know that you've gone through suffering or you're in a place of suffering. The, the house church context it really helps us to see this. Right, I mean, every house church has somebody overwhelmed by pain and suffering, whether it's currently or just was or is about to just be into it. We know this and we know it's overwhelming because Scripture tells us this. It's real and it's overwhelming. It's often unfair, but it's always meaningful. The work of Jesus, the work of Christ incorporates all of these things into a coherent way of viewing pain and suffering. Every other worldview, every other kind of perspective of pain and suffering leads us to sit in the midst of life's joys, looking ahead, foreseeing coming sorrows. Makes sense? That's really what all of them tell you. It's like, look, you've got something good now. Enjoy it because it's not going to last that pain is coming. And all that does is make us hold it even tighter, right? Remove ourselves from others, isolate, and try to just tightly grip this joy, this goodness that I got, this spouse, these kids, this family, this wife, whatever I've got. I'm just going to, I know that pain and suffering is coming, so I'm going to hold it really, really tightly. Rather, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of sorrows and taste the coming joy that's coming ahead. Not trying to escape the pain and the sorrow, but to experience joy in the midst of them. Because one of the most interesting things, frankly, about this Joel passage, right, is really how Joel is calling the people to respond to the pain and the suffering of the world. To respond to their own pain and their suffering. Because how we respond to pain and suffering and really of our own and of others, right? Because I mean, how, how, do you, how do you look at your own pain and suffering that you're currently going through or that you've gone through or that you're about to go through? Or also, how do you look at the pain and suffering of those around you? Because I mean, we, we see it everywhere. How we look at it, how we respond to it, really reveals a lot about ourselves. It reveals a lot about Israel, and it reveals a lot about us. Because again, if you have a tendency towards that religious view your response to pain and suffering is one of self-righteousness and judgment. And many of you have experienced this in the midst of your suffering. Where you say to yourself, especially if you've gone through suffering yourself and have come out the other end, you say, look how well I handled it. Right, Man, I made it through. Praise God. Right, I'm so thankful that I'm stronger for what I've done. In fact, I can almost handle anything now. Right? Suffering, it's not even a big deal to me. So you look at somebody else, 
Why is this such a big deal to them? (laughs) I went through it. I went through something even worse than what they're going through. Why won't this person just get over it? Can't they see that what they're going through just isn't even real suffering? Right? Like as a parent, that's easy to look at our children suffering that way, right? It's like, ugh, suffering in my day, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. It, because that's the way you look. I did it. I went through worse than you're ever going. You'll never know. Such judgment, such self-righteousness. But that's how we respond from a religious heart. Why can't they pull themselves together? From an irreligious point of view, from more of a secular point of view, it's still self-righteousness. But you're also distancing yourself where in your heart you look at somebody in pain and suffering and secretly you're really thankful it's not you. Right? There's a leaping in your heart. I dodged that bullet. I'm glad that wasn't me. I mean, I'm sorry that their marriage fell apart, but whoa, I'm really happy. I'm really thankful it's not me. Inwardly, but you never say that out loud. Outwardly, outwardly, you work to help them publicly. Publicly, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. Whatever you need, how can I help you? And inwardly, you are just rejoicing that it didn't happen to you. That's an irreligious view. And in all of it, you'll help, but you'll never identify with them. You never join too closely because you're afraid of that suffering rubbing off. (laughs) Because you don't want to be too close to suffering because if you're close to suffering, eventually you will maybe suffer in the same way, or just it ruins your joy because if you're seeing someone else suffer that way, it's like, I, just, I, I can't enjoy what I've got if I'm watching you go through what you're losing, and so you distance. And the story happens everywhere where you have a lot of outward excitement to help and alleviate suffering, right? The social media movement of justice kinds of ideas. Everyone wants to help publicly, but on an actual living level, you just can't identify with someone in the midst of suffering because you just don't, it, it's too hard because it reminds you too much of what you're going to lose because you've got that mentality of things are good now, but man, I, I don't want to lose what I got. And if I'm with you, I'm reminded too much that I could lose this and it's just too hurtful. I'm sorry for you and let's make sure this happens again. And you say things like, man, I can't even imagine what you're going through. Right? You, those types of statements, or, or also, you may say, you can't imagine what I'm going through. You know, this is isolating. Like, no one knows the suffering I'm going through. And, and then the person also says, I just, I can never really be with you. You know, George made that great point about injustice, about that moral proximity, right? Like, we're, more, we're morally obligated to help the poor, those, and our neighbors, those who are close to us. But as a society, we kind of keep making that circle of proximity. We keep our immediate neighbors are getting more and more like us and not in need. So it's easier to just not see any needs around us and help people. We don't see the injustice because we're moving ourselves away from it. And oh, as a society, have we done this with suffering too? We put those who are suffering, those who are hurting into counseling programs, treatment centers, move them into various places as neighborhoods. We don't want those homes and, you know, we don't want to be close to seeing pain and suffering so that we're not reminded of what it is like or that that could be us. But the biblical response, the response that Joel says to have in the face of suffering is lamenting earnest, genuine lament and worship, right? To have this genuine lament, to really honestly say, 
this is the worst. Your suffering is terrible. <laughs> not a comparison of suffering, not to say like, oh, yeah, you, yeah, your suffering's bad, but it's nothing like mine. No, just as your suffering is terrible. I am sorry. I know your pain because I have suffered too, and it was terrible for me. An earnestness, the ability to really show empathy and sorrow. And a genuineness in worship. I'm with you in the pain, and I'm with you in thanking and trusting God in the midst of the pain and the sorrow. I mean, the picture that Joel gives of responding, I mean, is, is, it's amazing and really difficult for us to actually do, right? And, and so it causes us to, to wonder, you know, why? Why is it so hard for us to respond in this way? Why, as a society, why as a church do we struggle to respond to pain and suffering properly? And it's really our selfishness, because if you look at the fruits of those perspectives that our heart can so easily wander to, the fruit of both of them really is just this ignorance and arrogance, not ignorance, arrogance, and distancing. Because in both of them, either perspective, right, that's what's so ironic, right? The most religious people in society are really the same as the most irreligious people in society, their hearts are. It's the same problem, fundamentally, that we all have, this selfishness. Because both groups look at suffering and look at God ultimately and say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. God owes me better. Right? He owes me. So a religious viewpoint, right? We say, look, God owes me a good, at least a suffering-free life. Right? Like at least, he at least owes me that. I mean, I don't need all the blessings right, that Amos was talking about. I don't need that. Fine. I don't need a huge car, but I at least, he at least owes me a cancer-free life. He at least owes me, right, 75 years. I mean, he at least owes me that. And, and the irreligious world says the same thing, that whatever this universe is, or some God behind it, I mean, everyone deserves to just live a normal life without pain and suffering, that we feel like we owe, we're owed this. And those feelings, right, you, I mean, we, you know how this works out in your life, that selfishness, right? And a, pro, a selfishness towards others results in hurt and arrogance and distance in relationships, right? If you approach a marriage with selfish things, this person owes me something. We know what the fruit is. It just being a neighbor that way, everything. And so why would we not expect that to result too if that's our perspective towards God, that we approach him very selfishly as well? God owes me. The universe owes me these things. Of course, it's going to result in the same types of hurt and distance, bitterness, anger, right? We respond to pain and suffering our own with either then this anger and bitterness or a desperate need to cope and get rid of it, mitigate it. And the suffering of others, we respond then with that just inability to identify with people. <laughs> Outwardly, we're, we're really kind and want to help, but inwardly, we're just doing backflips that it didn't happen to us and saying, it'll never happen to me, or I hope it never happens to me. Neither, in both positions, because of our selfishness, we're unable to genuinely show empathy and love and be with people and to worship God properly. 
So what's the hope? <laughs> what's the hope for us? And, and Joel points us towards this, and all of Scripture has been leading this way. You know, how can I get to, how can we get to a place of worship and trust in the midst of loss? You know, when you look at your life, and for many of us, boy, all of us suffer. Some of us suffer more, and some of us have been suffering more. You know, the, the years that the locusts have eaten, and for many of us, that is a real thing. And you're like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to get those years back. I don't know that I'm ever going to get this back. Or we see our loved ones go through these pain, this pain and the suffering, and how can I properly respond? How can I get to a place where we can genuinely lament together, where we can identify with, and as somebody who suffers, we can let people identify with us? Because both sides can have a tremendous amount of self-righteousness. Those who are suffering and those who are not suffering can be selfish and self-righteous. How can we get to a place like that? Well, to get to that spot, right, we do have to take a hard look at ourselves and how do you view suffering? What is your response? What is your natural inclinations in the view of suffering that you go through and that others go through? How do you respond to suffering? You know, when suffering comes, are you quick to get angry? Are, Are you quick to avoid suffering? Are you quick to mitigate suffering, to say it's not really suffering? Do you just, you know plot ahead, and I can do this on my own strength, right? Like suffering's not really suffering. I can handle this. Well, if that's your response to suffering, no wonder that you also probably have a hard time identifying with other people's sufferings or even aren't very conscious or even able to see suffering in others. That's a real weakness of the American church, right? You've probably experienced this in house church. We can have people who are really suffering, but nobody seems to notice, (laughs) Well, why don't they notice? Well, because our heart is so driven to selfishness and that I can do this on my own strength that I don't even know suffering anymore. We've desensitized ourselves to being able to even to identify my own suffering in my life, let alone the suffering in other people's lives. Do you respond to, su- to suffering with this mentality too of like, boy, why don't people just help me? <laughs> I just want people to know me. I want people to see this. I want, I want it to be fixed. Why, why is nobody doing anything? You know, why do you think they should? What's your hope in this? Do you hope that people can fix your suffering? Where do you look for your comfort and for your strength? Are you looking to people to fill the need that Christ was meant to fill in your life? Because ultimately, in both kind of views, I mean, how do you view pain and suffering in your life and in others? Really, the big question is, right, like, do you believe that God owes you? Do you believe that God owes you something? Do you believe that God punishes you for your sin? I mean, how are you viewing your suffering? Because that's really going to change the way in which we're going to interact. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is why Christianity is unlike every other religion and philosophy in this world, right? Every other religion and philosophy offers you hope of maybe one day, hope of something, as long as you can really do something. But the gospel, right, really confronts us on a couple of levels, all right? And the prophets do this too. In the gospel, I'm really confronted with my sin, right? If I'm really looking at Christ on the cross, in the midst of my suffering, and in the midst of other suffering, instead of looking at my suffering, instead of looking at me, looking at other people, if I'm looking at Jesus dying on the cross for me and for my sin, 
I can't save myself. I have nothing of my own to stand on. Instead of it, I, 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 how can I ask the question, how can I make that statement or that thought that God owes me anything? If Christ died for me, and, and I'm honest with myself, there is nothing good in me. If, I wanna, if we want to start talking about what am I owed, <laughs> what do I deserve in this life? What should I be experiencing because of my heart, because of my desires, because of how I've treated people, because of how I continue to treat people? I, I, the better question is more of not why does God allow suffering, but why does God allow so much happiness? You know, how, how do I have anything good in this life? Why am I experiencing any of these joys and satisfactions? God does not owe me happiness, but he has richly blessed me with so much more than I could ever hope for. The gospel, right, it it humbles us. You can't stay self-righteous when you're looking at Christ dying on the cross for you and for the other person, right? You can't say, they deserve this. They don't. They don't deserve it. And you, didn't, you don't deserve it either. Christ has removed it, has paid the price of it. He's reconciled it. He's redeemed this person and you. You're both in the same standing. How can I stand in judgment and say, right, oh, you deserve suffering more than I do, or you should be able to get through this more than I should? You just can't stay very self-righteous when you're watching your creator bleed and die for you and for your sin. So the gospel humbles us and enables us to show empathy. And the gospel also really confronts us with love. Right? If I really see this aspect of that it was because of my sin that he died, but he also suffered in my place, my anger and bitterness and fear is removed. Right? Because there's so much of that in all of those things, you know, when you experience pain and suffering, it's easy to get into anger and bitterness and also resentment, but also fear. Look, nobody knows me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can identify with me. I don't even know if I want to talk about this with other people. I don't even know where I could go with this. There's just not, but if I view Jesus, if I see him suffering in the garden and on the, on the way to the cross, overwhelmed with the pain and the suffering, and I see how he suffered, suffered for me on my behalf to give me hope and to give me life. What can I ever be afraid of? How can I be bitter? I don't need you to know my pain and my suffering. (laughs) Jesus knows my pain and my suffering better than anyone ever will. He knows it better than I even know my pain and my suffering. How can I wallow in it any longer? How can I be bitter at other people? How can I be afraid of the judgments of other people. God doesn't owe me anything, but he loves me still. This is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he doesn't owe us, but he loves us. That whatever the cause of suffering in our life, because it seems like within Joel, within scripture, within just common knowledge, we know this, there are lots of causes of the suffering that we've encountered and that we're going through. A lot of them are due to our own faults. A lot of them are due to the faults of others. A lot of them are haphazard and the result of just living in a fallen world. The reality of the gospel, though, confronts us with this fact that no matter why I'm going through this suffering, 
or why this person is going through suffering, I know that it's not a lack of love on God's part. I know that it, it can't be indifference on God's part because he wouldn't have suffered and died in our place. Whatever the cause of it is, however I view it, I have to also view God's love in the same breath, in the same view. There is suffering in this world, and it's overwhelming, and it's terrible, and it's not part of God's plan. It's the worst. And God's love is overwhelming and good and part of God's plan, and he is working in the midst of our suffering. And when we see both of those realities in the same light, it melts our hearts. It changes us. If I can see that I'm not owed good, but that I'm given love and grace and forgiveness, not because of anything that I have done, and even in the midst of my pain and my suffering, oh, now I can experience joy and fullness, and I can actually enter into other people's pains and suffering. Even though my pain and suffering didn't, doesn't seem the same, it is the same. I know what it's like. I can identify because I know Christ can identify. And I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. And because of his going through pain and suffering, I know. And I can join you in your pain and your suffering because we both have gone through the same experience of forgiveness and love of Christ. We both have the same love. We both have the same Father. We both have the same experience of salvation. Amen. So regardless of where you're at, right, with pain and with suffering, we really have to be confronted by it. We have to open our eyes to pain and suffering in the world, right? We got to awake, rise up, right, and see. We have to see the injustices that are around us, absolutely, and we have to see real pain and suffering in our own lives and in the lives of other people, but not through a lens of hopelessness, not through a lens of the world, not through the lens of religion and judgment and all of those things, but through the lens of Christ's love, I suffer, you suffer, and in the midst of our suffering, we have a heightened experience of joy and peace now. Our hope is not just then, but it's now. And together as a community of faith, we can experience that, but only when we actually enter into what Joel is calling us to enter into. In the face of tremendous pain, hurt, and loss, we lament together and we worship together. Let me pray.